Father God, would you please speak to us through your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated. Well, we're looking uh, this morning at that passage from Genesis 32. It's one of the most enigmatic, one of the most puzzling passages in the Old Testament. But it is important. This is the story of how the people of Abraham, the people of faith, are given the name of Israel. And as the church, as the New Testament people, we also carry that name. Paul writes in Galatians 6 that we are the Israel of God. It is also, I think, particularly a story for those of you who are like Michel, a second or third or fourth or fifth child. Um, you see, Jacob is a second child. Uh, how many second children do we have here? How many children are uh, number two in their family? Not me, actually. Uh, yeah, so one, one or two. And, uh, um, well, maybe this is for you, maybe this isn't. But Jacob is a second child, and he didn't want to be second. He wanted to be first. So all his life, he fought. He fought his brother from the very womb. You see, he had a twin brother, Esau, and Esau came out first. And as Esau comes out of the womb, Jacob comes out holding onto his heel. That is why he's called Jacob. Jacob means one who takes the heel, one who supplants. And he fought his brother for, his, for the birthright that belonged to the firstborn, but Jacob wanted it. He, he doesn't fight Esau physically, because Esau, and the Bible says this, is a big, big, hairy man. He is much stronger than Jacob. Instead, Jacob uses cunning. He waits for his moment, and that moment comes when Esau has been out hunting, Jacob has been at home helping mum in the kitchen, and that's very much how we're told it works out in their family. Uh, and Esau asks for some stew, some lentil stew. And Jacob, sensing his opportunity, gets Esau to swear over his birthright to him in return for the stew. At the time, as far as Esau was concerned, it meant nothing. It was just words. But it does show how desperate Jacob was to become number one. And Jacob fought his brother and deceived his father for the blessing that should have gone to the older son. His father Isaac feels that the time has come to pass on his blessing to his two sons. He has two blessings to give, one for his older son and one for his younger son. And this is where it gets significant. In order to steal Esau's blessing, Jacob pretends to be Esau. He dresses up as Esau. Isaac is completely blind. And he deceives his father into giving him the blessing that was reserved for Esau. And Jacob gets the blessing 
That was reserved for the first son. The blessing which speaks of how people will bring him gifts, will bring him wealth, and of how his brother will bow down to him. And all that is left for Esau is the blessing that was reserved for the second son. And in a culture which realised that words matter, that was very significant. And Esau is furious. And he is going to kill, quite literally, kill Jacob. Um, so Jacob does what any reasonable person would do. He runs away. <laughs> he leaves the country. He becomes an expat. And he goes to live with Uncle Laban. So Jacob fights his brother and deceives his, his father. He ends up fighting his father-in-law as well. Uncle Laban welcomes Jacob into his house and then deceives the deceiver. Jacob falls in love with his daughter Rachel and Laban tells him, tells Jacob, that if he works for him for seven years, he can marry her. But after seven years, when they come to the altar and they say the vows and the marriage veil is raised, Jacob realises he's married the wrong woman, the wrong sister. The moral of the story of that story is if you're getting married, make sure the veil is raised before you say the vows rather than after. Uh, Pushkin has a great story about something like that in Meteor, in Snowstorm. Um, so Jacob has to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel. And then when he continued to work for, for Laban after those seven, 14 years, there were constant battles about whose sheep were whose. By the way, this is a brilliant story. If you haven't read it in Genesis, it's sort of Genesis 28 to 33, read it. It's just a brilliant, brilliant story. There were constant battles about whose sheep were whose. And Jacob uses common sense, some primitive and rather dodgy genetic engineering, along with some divinely given inside information, to increase his flock. His flock gets larger, Laban's flock gets smaller. That makes the sons of Laban mad at Jacob because they, is, they think he is swindling them. And Jacob decides to leave again, quickly with his flocks, his wives, and his now 11 children. He's been very busy. Although this time an angel has told him to return to the land from which he came. And now we come to the moment of crisis. As Jacob travels home, Esau comes to meet him. But he has not come with the fatted calf. This is going to be no friendly family reunion. Esau means business with his younger brother who ripped him off. Esau is bringing with him 400 men. That is an army. And when Jacob hears the news, Genesis 32, 7, he was greatly afraid and distressed. He's scared, really scared. He divides his company into two so that if one is attacked and wiped out, the other might survive. And he prepares gifts to send on ahead of him to Esau, 
And we're not talking about a box of chocolates and a matryoshka. He sends ahead of him 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 30 donkeys. And that night, having sent his wives and children across the river Jabbok, Jacob remains behind. And in his distress and fear and isolation, a man comes and wrestles with him. Who is this man? The desert fathers and mothers speak of wrestling with demons, but this is no demon. It is real, because at the end of the night, Jacob's hip has been put out of joint. It is a man, because we're told it is a man. Hosea, in writing about this passage, describes him as an angel, a messenger of God. He says of Jacob, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. But Jacob was convinced that he had seen God face to face. Man, angel, God? Who is he? He's certainly far more powerful than Jacob. He just needs to touch Jacob's hip and it's put out of joint. And Jacob knows that this man is far more powerful than him. All he can do is hang on in there and not let the man go until the man gives him a blessing. And in the end, he sort of wins the battle and he gets the blessing because he does hang on. There is so much grace in this story. The man God comes to Jacob in his fear and distress. The man God could overwhelm Jacob but he does not. Indeed, he allows Jacob to overcome him. He allows himself to be overcome so that he might bless Jacob. This passage reminds me of people who have struggled with God in prayer. We read in the New Testament of a a lady from Syrophoenicia. She was a Gentile, she wasn't a Jew, and she comes to Jesus to ask him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. She cries to him. Jesus is silent. He says nothing, but she stays. The disciples tell him to send her away. Jesus is silent. She stays. And when Jesus tells her he has not come for people like her, she says, I know, I know, but I'm going to stay because like a dog, I will be content with the crumbs off your table. And because she stays, because she perseveres, Jesus says, oh woman, great is your faith. And he gives her what she is longing for. Perhaps he had her in mind when he tells the story we read in the Gospel about the widow who would not give up with the unjust judge. Day and night she pesters him. She'll not let it go until she has justice. That, says Jesus, is how you can be with God. That is how you you know if you have faith. Faith will go on holding on to God even when all the evidence points away from God. There are moments when we will find ourselves wrestling with God. Sometimes becoming a Christian, coming to faith, can be traumatic. 
In most discipleship or alpha or confirmation courses, early on we do a session on sin. It's a hard session to do because people often leave that session in quite some inner turmoil. We thought we were okay. We thought we were doing enough to be all right with God. But we begin to see ourselves in a new light. We begin to realise that we're not the sort of people we thought we were. We begin to see the pride and selfishness and self-justification and coldness that is within us. And some become aware that yes, we are cut off from God and we are lost. And that is the point when people can choose to walk away. They say, I can't handle this. I'm not doing this. I'm not going there. But that is when we need to hold on. Or perhaps, and we were talking about this in one group recently, you're praying for something you desperately want and it doesn't happen. Or even worse, it happens for somebody else who doesn't really want it. You pray for that job, that contract, that visa, that child, that partner, that flat, and it doesn't come. That's when we need to hold on. Or what happens when sickness or tragedy strikes? Or when we face rejection, deep disappointment or failure, and it seems that God has walked away from you? That is when we need to hold on. Or what happens when nothing happens? When it's simply a daily hard slog, when we fight with the doubts and the temptations and the daily anxieties, when we long for the presence and all that there seems to be is absence. That is when we need to hold on. Or what happens when we face forces far greater than us, forces of loneliness, rejection, shame, fear and death? What happens when it seems that we are dropping into the bottomless pit? No, God has not left us. He's not left you. God has come to you and you are wrestling with him. He doesn't ask you to be brave and heroic. He simply asks you to be honest, to overcome him simply by holding on to him. This is the call to hold on even when he touches our hip and it hurts like hell. Jacob held on to God and in holding on to God, he defeated God. I will not let you go, he says, till you bless me. And the God-man blesses him. There is a double blessing here. First, he asks him, what is your name? Now that's daft, this is God. God doesn't need to know what his name is. God already knows his name. But God is not asking Jacob to say his name for his God's sake. He is asking him to say his name for his own sake. And in saying his name, Jacob, Jacob is saying so much. He is saying that he is the supplanter, which is what Jacob means. He is confessing to his lies and his deceit. But he is also making a declaration. 
Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, the blessing that belonged to the firstborn son. It was a blessing that said that the other brother would give to him and that the other brother would bow down to him and serve him. But, and I have to say I owe this, and I think it is a brilliant insight, to Jonathan Sachs. He was the former chief rabbi in the United Kingdom and he wrote a book on a, with a chapter on this incident called Not in God's Name. And it's a great book and I recommend it. When Jacob finally meets his brother in the next chapter, in Genesis 33, Jacob is the one who gives his possessions to Esau. Jacob is the one who bows seven times before Esau. In effect, he is accepting his status in this culture as a second child. So when he says, I am Jacob, he, before God, he is also saying, I do not need to be Esau. I do not need to pretend to be my older brother. I do not need to strive to be like my older brother. I can be who God made me to be. But that is not all. Because God then has a different blessing for him. God blesses him with a new name. You shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. In God's grace, God comes to us and allows us to overcome him so that he can bless us. 2,000 years ago, the God-man came to earth. He allowed us to overcome him, to crucify him, so that he could bless us. The God-man comes to us now to wrestle with us. We can walk away. Jacob could have walked away, and tragically many people walk away. But we're invited to wrestle with him, to pray with tears and petitions, and like the woman with the unjust judge, to overcome him so that he can bless us. Because it's only when we overcome the one who actually can never be overcome that we begin to realise the depth of his love for us. We are set free to face up to the past, to accept ourselves as we are, second or third or fifth or sixteenth or first child, whatever, and to discover the unique calling that he has for us. Jacob becomes Israel. He becomes the biological father of the people of God of the 12 tribes of Israel. But he also becomes the father of the people who strive with God-man and who prevail. He becomes the father of people who have the faith that perseveres, the faith that holds on, the faith that will not let go until God blesses us. Father God, give us that faith that holds on to you. Amen.